Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Hello, everybody from around the world. We get a little window every time we teach a class here in Pennsylvania, and I just taught one last week, at least last week upon recording this, mm-hmm. we get a sense of where our podcast listeners are coming from. And they're coming from around the United States and around the world. It's really exciting. So wherever you are on this beautiful planet, thank you for joining. Thanks for tuning in. Tuning in. Tuning in. in. <laughs> <laughs> Came out wrong. That's okay. Yes, yes, that's okay. And we're so happy, those of you who let us know that you're listeners, that's always a blessing. Um, and the course we were teaching, of course. My favorite, Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery. And I had my favorite person in the whole world take the class. That would <laughs> I be, took the yeah, class. That would be thank you. you. Thank you. That's thank you for taking so the class. So awesome. Um, and when you say, and the Marian Mystery... You mean the mystery about Mary, the mother of God. Um, and so I, I think not everybody hears Marion and even knows, you know, that well, that means point. that. Marion of Mary, of like Mary. Christian of Christ. Yeah. The Marian mystery. And I, I summed it up on the first night of the class with a quote from scripture that we may not even think of in reference to Mary. Indeed, there are thousands of upon thousands of verses in reference to Mary that we don't realize are in reference to Mary. And that was part of the fun part of the class is pointing this out. Because once mm-hmm. you get that interpretive key for the Bible, that anytime the scripture refers to the temple, to Jerusalem, to the holy city, to the promised land, to Eden, to the holy of holies, to the inner courts of the Lord, to the dwelling place of God, all of that is super abundantly fulfilled in Mary. And when you once you have that interpretive key, uh, things like, I rejoice when they said to me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right? That's all about pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the, in the first sense, but the deeper sense, that's a pilgrimage into the mystery of Mary, because she's the house of the Lord. Because if Christmas is real, Mary's body became the dwelling place of the Most High God. I just, I love unfolding that stuff for people. But here's the scripture I wanted to reference that summarizes the whole mystery of Mary, the Marian mystery, is summed up right here in a very short and simple line of Jesus. You know the tree by its fruit. Mm. It's the whole thing right there. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So what kind, if Jesus is who he said he was, the God-man, what kind of tree is Mary. You know a tree by its fruit. What kind of tree is Mary? She's the God-man tree. She's the Jesus tree. She's the Redeemer tree. She's the the second person of the Trinity tree in the flesh, right? She, she became, her body gave flesh to the second person of the Trinity. She is the God-man tree. And when you approach Mary from that angle, oh my gosh, the whole of our faith opens up in such new and exciting ways. And I'm sharing this not to make you feel bad for not having been 
at the Marian Mystery Course last week. I'm sharing this because guess what? What? We are offering this course online mm. very soon. Right. At the end of this month. So check out the link in the show notes to learn more about how you can take this course from the comfort of your own home. But Wendy, do you want to do you want to share anything about your experience of sure. taking the course? I'll say I um have a journey of my own with Mary and I think so many of us do and that was certainly apparent during the course the conversations maybe um outside of the class mm -hmm. session and sharing toward the end of the week when people shared about what blessed them during the course yeah. even even a priest shared he was hesitant to come to the yeah. course because not that into Mary. Yeah, yeah. He kind of said it with a little like makes me a little uncomfortable kind yeah. of face. And was I, very honest. it was honest. And I think that was, you know, a beautiful thing to see. We're we're all on a journey and I think this course could not not deepen our relationship yes. with Mary. One of my favorite things was benefiting from all the reading you do. <laughs> my husband <laughs> reads a lot. I know you guys probably guessed We're that. We're sitting in my office right now. It's, around, is, it's like a library. Yeah, just wall to wall. Uh, and so he's gathered so many beautiful quotes from different wonderful authors about Mary into a study guide. And then he, you know, you talk about them right. during the course and just point out, you know, some of the awesome things that have been written. And I especially loved when you would share from Pope Benedict. Yeah. Just the, there is so much beauty in what he has to say about um, having just an enthusiasm for that, that devotion to Mary comes from a place of joyful yeah. enthusiasm and you know just wasn't what what's the exact yeah, i'm quote? remembering that quote the, the quote is this is a paraphrase but the, at the heart of true devotion to mary is the ecstatic joy of david's dance before the ark he says we cannot understand authentic marian devotion without understanding that ecstatic joy of david dancing before the ark because there's another old testament image the ark Every time there's reference to the ark, which is where the the tablets of God's word carved in stone were placed, it's where the bread from heaven, the manna, was placed. All of that is super abundantly fulfilled in Mary because the word of God was made flesh in her womb. The bread come, da come down from heaven came down from heaven through her womb, ultimately. So yeah, I just love that from Pope Benedict, that, that we can't understand authentic Marian devotion without that ecstatic joy. That's yeah. what you were getting. At. Yeah, it is. That was really powerful. I loved it. Shall we go to our questions? Yes, let's do that. We have a question from a patron named James. Hello, James. Christopher and Wendy, first of all, thank you for this podcast. It has been a great way to immerse my mind in truth on a weekly basis. I really admire your boldness in addressing the deepest yearnings of the human heart. I'm very bold. I know that. <laughs> sorry, that's a quote from a... Sorry. A funny Won't YouTube video. Yes. <laughs> for, con <laughs> for context of my question, my wife and I have been married for eight years and have three beautiful children. We love theology of the body and practicing natural family planning. Our youngest child is six months old 
and my wife is just starting to get her cycles back. We feel called to delay pregnancy and are looking ahead to a season of abstinence. Do you have any advice for making this time fruitful in our marriage? Mm. Like many men, my love language is physical touch, and I don't want us to just get through this time, but to have it be a season that actually draws us closer as husband and wife. I know the Lord has blessings for us here, but it's difficult for me to translate this from a theoretical level to the regular reality of abstinence. Any guidance you can give would be helpful. James, thank you so much just for putting it out there honestly and sincerely. I really sense the sincerity of your heart, and that that blesses me. Uh, Wendy, as we look back at our 26-plus years of marriage, I think for both of us, one period of that marriage stands out as a time of unexpected blessings. Yeah. And it was the time, we both know it, um, after the birth of one of our children, when, when we also had reasons for extended abstinence. We won't get into all the details of it, but we had good reason for an extended time of abstinence. And it was, we're not just talking a few weeks, we're talking several months. Mm-hmm. And, and looking at that, looking at those several months, which we didn't know how long it would be when we ventured out into that territory, uh, that, was, that was a little daunting. But we can look back at that time now and see how how we grew in loving one another mm-hmm. in ways that we were challenged to to grow precisely by the abstinence. Yeah. And it enabled a deeper understanding of our bond, it enabled a deeper physical tenderness shown in ways that aren't leading to intercourse and that has been incredibly valuable for yeah. our marriage. Yeah. It's one of those things where you you can't know what you're going to learn till you learn right. it. <laughs> and James, you and your wife don't know what you're going to learn through this time, but you're the the attitude of heart that that set, that notices oh, I could just kind of tense up a little bit yeah. and get through this time, wait for it to be over, or it could be a gift to us somehow is absolutely the most beautiful way to begin this season just that that attitude of openness god can do something beautiful through this time james i I really relate to your love language being physical touch that's my love language to use that language love (laughs) language what's that book uh the five love languages five love languages right Uh, most people know about that book there's very valuable info in that book we learn about ourselves by reading those are learning our own love language and learning the love language of the person we're married to. Very helpful stuff. You might, if you haven't read that book, it sounds like you may have anyway, James, you might want to read that. But I would just suggest that, not just suggest, I would hold out to you as foundational that physical touch as a love language is not reserved simply for marital intercourse. Right? There is a way, and this is what we really learned, a way of embracing one another, holding one another, touching one another, kissing one another, being together closely, physically closely, knowing we're not going to be consummating our marriage and learning new levels of, of self-mastery, learning new levels of 
talking through what we're experiencing and and not put it this way abstinence should not be starving yourselves from physical affection there are obviously expressions of physical affection that we know very well knowing ourselves knowing our spouse that this would lead to uh, a, a desire for intercourse that might be too much yeah and but that different that differs from couple to couple we can't say well here's the line here's what every couple needs to the, the 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 only line we can really say this is what we know is true is the fullness of arousal being climax that is reserved for the completed act um, but spouses should be learning how to be close and affectionate and tender with one another even when they know this can't lead to intercourse and that creates a self-mastery where you you become more and more master of your own desires and you learn how to direct those desires towards the true the good and the beautiful towards what is truly good for my spouse right now knowing we can't have intercourse i am going to to aim my affection uh, i'm going to direct my desires and express my affection in such a way that is tender that is close that is intimate but does not stir us to a point of no return, if I can put it delicately. Uh, and, and spouses have to learn that language between themselves. It's nothing you can learn in a book. It's nothing you can learn uh, from somebody else's experience because everyone's different here. But that's exactly the kind of conversation that is, that is compelled by times of abstinence, especially extended times of abstinence. The alternative to that is we don't talk about it at all, and you sleep in one room and I sleep in the next, and we become bitter and 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 uh, distant, and that is not that is not the call of of abstinence in marriage. I have just a few other quick thoughts to Please. share on that topic. One is that one of the things that was helpful to me during that time, and it's not just during that time. But when you have small children that you're caring for and um, just the busy home life, whatever that looks like for you, I found that if I knew that we were setting aside time on a, say, a particular day to, you know, that evening to have a, a particular time set aside to spend time showing some particular love to one another, that I needed to be careful not to kind of overdo it during the day. Don't go to the grocery store and do laundry and everything else that you're doing. You have to take something, I had to take something off my to-do list to be in the right place that I wasn't exhausted because that wasn't good for our yes, time. Yes. And that was just a, a discipline for me in making our relationship a priority during this time of abstinence to, to be planning ahead to be a more genuine more genuinely loving present wife to you. So you know what love? I don't know that I ever knew that you did that. <laughs> no. I'm learning something right now. <laughs> or if I knew it, I forgot it, That's which is okay. entirely possible with the age of my brain. Um, so I just suggest that an awareness, you know, of really the priority of your relationship. And just as James said, physical touch is so important to him. Also to know what's most important to your wife yes, and that you're yes. prioritizing that as well. Yes. Um, so I, that was important for me to say. And also, I sometimes when we talk about these times in a married couple's life, I wonder how the single people listening hear it. Yeah, that's a good point. And whether they're taking away 
Oh, Christopher said the only thing that's reserved. <laughs> We're talking about married people. Married people. Yeah. People. <laughs> yeah, I think it yeah. can cause a confusion. Yeah, no, that's it's a not, good point, Wendy. It's not yeah. like um, they're trying to be tricky. It's really genuinely, I want to understand what is right yes. and good. Yes. And so, you know, the context of marriage where the giving of our entire being to one another is sacramentally, yes. you know, enacted is the context in which we're talking about this affection. It's not a recommendation for people who aren't married. Good point. Good, so. very good point. And and I get into the specific details of that uh, that question you're asking about or you're posing mm-hmm. about uh, premarital affection and marital affection in times of abstinence. I get into a little more of the the details in my book, Good News About Sex mm, and Marriage. Yes. I lay out all the very solid moral principles and then apply them in, in given situations. So check out, if you're interested, you can check out the link in the show notes to that book. That is a great resource to have. It's 150 of the most asked questions about the church's teaching, and I use Theology of the Body to to answer those questions. So um, was there anything else you wanted to mm-hmm. add there, James? I, you know, Wendy, I'm just feeling, again, learning this or relearning it because I forgot it, that you would take that time if if we had set aside, we knew Mm-hmm. Say you know tonight we're we're going to make time for one another to be close to have a conversation to to be skin to skin was a concept we learned mm-hmm. in a in a book that we read yes. years ago which has been a great blessing in our life skin to skin where you you're together and your skin is to the other's skin mm. uh, that just intimacy and closeness is is so nourishing in in marriage so long as you you are expressing that in the right uh, manner of tenderness and honoring the other and and not pushing the envelope as we've been saying um, but just learning that you would you would do that on days that you knew we were going to have time together in the evening I feel really honored and loved and I'm grateful to you that's that's kind of special yeah it is special and I'm grateful to you James for your being a regular patron of the work that we do at the theology of the body Institute thank you so much we we rely on the monthly support of our patrons to do what we do. And James, I hope you're taking advantage of all of the benefits that we offer our patrons. There's a whole library of talks and videos and ongoing formation. We have a lot of on online retreats that we have done exclusively for our patrons. So James, make sure you're checking that out. And if anybody out there is listening who would like to be part of our, our global community of patrons to help us and also for us to, to help you, Uh, please check out the link to learn more. Our next question is from an anonymous listener who asks, what is the difference between Jewish and Catholic marriages? I understand that a Catholic marriage is sacramental, but what makes the difference? Also, was marriage always administered by the husband and wife? It seems to be done by the rabbi in a Jewish wedding ceremony. Why would this have changed? I guess I'm just curious about the history of human marriage as God intended it Mm. and the glorious realization of it after the coming of Christ Mm. and the institution of his church. How has our definition of human marriage been changed in light of it being the sign of the eternal marriage of Christ and his church? What a great question. This comes from a real thinker. And I can relate to this person because I too have a great interest in the history of marriage I studied anthropology in my undergrad work at a secular university, 
And one of the things I really liked was studying the different customs in cultures around the world when it comes to marriage. And you will find a many, many, many common threads. Um, so I relate to that. And, and marriage is, she is putting her finger on the key distinction. And the key distinction is that uh, we believe as Catholics, marriage is a sacrament. I'll say more about that uh, in a moment. But I also want to add this, that what we know about marriage as a sacrament has its roots in the Jewish scriptures, right? The Jews are, as John Paul II said, are older brothers and sisters in the faith. So we can learn so much from Jewish customs. Uh, for example, we'll see, I remember a cousin of mine, my mother's, one of my mother's sisters married a Jewish man, and they raised their children as Jews, and when my cousin had his bar mitzvah, uh, this was years ago, I remember just, it was the first time I had ever been in a Jewish synagogue, and I saw where they placed the Torah, the Word of God. They placed it in a, what looked very much like a, I would call a Catholic tabernacle, and here they had in the synagogue, in a tabernacle, uh, the Torah, the Word of God, and it just dawned on me, like, oh my gosh, the Word has been made flesh, and we have that Word in the flesh, sacramentally, placed in a tabernacle. And, and we can make similar connections here, draw out similar uh, analogies with, with the Jewish understanding of marriage and the Catholic understanding of marriage. Wendy, please keep me on point here, because I know she had some specific uh, questions I want to make sure I'm mm -hmm. getting to. Okay. But um, one was, uh, was it, was it, uh, I'm sorry, you might have to re reread some of mm -hmm. it. Was it, um, was it always administered by the husband yes, and wife? Yes, that's right. That I don't, I don't know the Jewish tradition there. Uh, in the Catholic Church, at least in the West, right, there's a different theology in the Eastern Church, uh, both in the Orthodox and in those Eastern churches that are in union with Rome. And, and Rome respects the theology of the Eastern Church here, that the priest in the Eastern understanding is the minister of the sacrament of marriage. In the West, the understanding we have in the Catholic West is that the married couple themselves minister the sacrament to each other, and the priest or the deacon, uh, whatever the case may be, they are only the official witnesses to the administration of the sacrament by the bridegroom and the bride. So that's a little interesting tidbit of theology. Keep me on point here again, Wendy. What what were some of her other... Okay. So she is also wondering, how has our definition of marriage been changed in light of it being the sign of the eternal marriage of Christ? Yeah, oh, great, church? great. So we go to the Old Testament here, as this is obviously where the Jewish understanding of marriage comes from, and it was the Jewish prophets who who used this powerful, powerful language saying that marriage is a symbol of how Yahweh loves his people Israel, right? I will betroth you to me forever in fidelity. I will betroth you to me and you will know the Lord. That's right out of the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. That Biblical language goes right back to the book of Genesis. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. That's the same word 
that the prophet Hosea is using when he says, I will betroth you to me forever. He's speaking for Yahweh here. I will betroth you, Israel, to me forever, and you will know the Lord. This is an unimagined intimacy. And, and we can even say that the prophets, although they use this language, they, they use this intimate language, they barely connected the dots, right? Pope Benedict XVI, in his document Deus Caritas Est, which translated, God is love, he says, in the Old Testament, the idea of this wedding between God and Israel only went as far as standing in God's presence, which was intimacy enough, right? Mm -hmm. You will know the Lord. The, the, the human imagination could only take that to the Jewish imagination, let's put it that way, could only take that, according to Pope Benedict, to the place of standing in God's presence. But in the New Testament, with Christ in the flesh, with God in the flesh, that Old Testament analogy, that spousal imagery, proceeds through the Eucharist, where we, the bride, the church, receive the body and blood of our bridegroom into our bodies, the analogy goes now through the New Testament, through the incarnation, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, through the establishment, which is the fulfillment of Israel, of the church. That analogy of spousal intimacy, of knowledge of God, goes not just to the point of standing in God's presence, which is glorious enough, but it goes to an unimagined intimacy beyond what previously couldn't be imagined to the point of consummation. Now we go into the bridal chamber with God, and the bride receives the body of the bridegroom into her body and conceives eternal life. Now truly the theology of the human body all of which was, was laid in, in terms of a certain groundwork, very important fundamental groundwork of the theology of the body, is the book of Genesis. These are the Jewish scriptures. But what we learn in the New Testament is that the very establishment of marriage in Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Mm. That bedrock of what marriage is, that that constitution of marriage in the book of Genesis is not fulfilled until the incarnation. In fact, the fathers of the church said this, many popes have said this, that that line in Genesis, Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. That itself is a foreshadowing of the incarnation. And all of this comes gloriously together in Ephesians chapter 5. Here, as St. John Paul II says, that spousal analogy from the Old Testament, which he says in the Jewish scriptures, was only half opened, as it were. Now it is fully revealed. When St. Paul gives us the millennia-old wondering, what is the answer to the question, for this reason, for what reason? For what reason does a man leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh? For this reason, Genesis says, but Genesis doesn't really give us the full answer. It can't. The full answer to the reason that we're made male and female and called to become one flesh 
is given to us in the New Testament so clearly by St. Paul in a passage which John Paul II says is a summary, in some sense, of the entire message of the Bible. This is what God, John Paul II says, this is what God wishes above all to transmit to mankind through his word. Here it is, drum roll please. <laughs> For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting straight out of the book of Genesis, the Jewish scriptures, but then he gives us the long-awaited, indeed awaited for millennia, he gives us the full answer. When he says, this is a mega mystery, a great mystery, what is our creation as male and female and the call to that intimate biblical knowledge, Adam knew his wife Eve, and it refers, St. Paul says, to Christ and the church. Astounding, astounding. The whole reason we're male and female, the whole reason God established marriage is to reveal to the human race that we are destined to know God in the spousal sense. Jesus himself says, this is eternal life, that we would know God. There's that biblical word again, that we would know God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That biblical knowledge with Jesus Christ, where we become one in the flesh with Jesus Christ, this grafts us now, the marriage of the Lamb, that's how the book of Revelation describes it, the marriage of the Lamb grafts us now, because we are one with the eternal Son of God, we are now grafted into the eternal exchange of the Trinity. And we are now participating somehow Eternity will be the human participation. It's astounding. I can barely even put words to it. But somehow, we will participate humanly in the eternal generation of the Son by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it shouldn't surprise us that that is the case if we believe in Christmas, because that's exactly what Christmas is. It is a human participation. More specifically, it is Mary's participation, a creature like you and me, Wendy. Mary is a creature, mm -hmm. and a creature has now, in time, generated in her body the one who was eternally generated by the Father without a body. Now, because of Christmas, that mystery of the eternal generation of the Son has broken into time in and through the Marian mystery, the mystery of Mary's yes to that eternal eternal generation, and somehow we all get to participate in that forever. And if I can say it again, that's why I love that course on Mary so much, because that's where we go. We enter in, that's the Marian mystery. The Marian mystery is precisely that human beings now get to participate in the generation of the Son by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what our bodies are are ultimately destined to do. Astounding. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, take the Marian Mystery course. <laughs> Check out the link to learn more. Do you have anything you want to add? My well, way? what I loved about your answer was your emphasis on that establishment of, establishment of marriage in Genesis and that both Jesus and St. Paul point to that very line from the Jewish scriptures. So she's looking for this connection yes, yes. Um, with 
the Jewish history. So I think that's really beautiful that we have those direct links to the Jewish history there. And I'll just add this one more thought to, to complete my answer to her question, his or her question. We don't know who asked this question. Mm -hmm. But in terms of sacramentality, the questioner had pointed this out. He or she knows that it's a sacrament now. What do we mean by that? What the Jews understood was that marriage provided a certain analogy. But sacrament is related to analogy, but goes deeper, right? Marriage is not merely a metaphor. A sacrament really and truly communicates what it symbolizes. And that's something new that only Christ could reveal to us. That marriage is not just kind of a sort of parallel. Oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't there kind of a parallel there? No, no, no. It's a sacrament. It really and truly was created by God, precisely designed by God, precisely to really and truly communicate the divine mystery. So the love that you and I have for one another, Wendy, and the love that a all married couples have for one another are meant to have for one another. We could put it that way because we know it doesn't always go so well. But the love that a husband and wife are meant to have for one another is really and truly meant to be a real, efficacious, effective participation in the life and love of the Trinity. That's, that's the point I'm trying to get across. And that can only be known in and through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. You know, we're kind of getting into this mystery of Mary a little bit in this well, podcast, which is awesome. And there actually, our next question relates to that as well. Great. This is a question from Alexandra. Hello, Alexandra. She says, why does Jesus call God Father if God is neither man nor woman? And it's the Holy Spirit who came over Mary and she conceived. Why is he father for us? Just because Jesus told us? I'm sure the theology of the body has a deeper explanation for us. Yes, the the I think the real question Alexandra is asking is, why did Jesus reveal God as father? And yes, the theology of the body does shine a brilliant light on this. And I just want to preface everything I'm saying by, by acknowledging the mystery of God's fatherhood is beyond human concepts, human words, uh, infinitely beyond human fatherhood itself. Uh, so the mystery is transcendent. Anything we can possibly say is, is merely a, a little drop in the vast ocean that is the mystery of God. But, but we can say some things. Let's just pose the question this way. Why has God not revealed himself as mother? Not that God does not have motherly qualities, right? Jesus himself says, oh, I wish I could gather you under my wings like, like a mother hen. Um, in the Old Testament, we have this image of of, of God drawing Israel to his, his breast, uh, and that she drinks, that Israel drinks from, from the breast of God. Uh, saints have spoken of this. Uh, everything that is true, good, and beautiful about all of our humanity, including motherhood, which is integral to humanity, is found somehow in the mystery of God, because everything God created comes from the heart of God. But God has not revealed himself as mother. 
he has revealed himself as Father. Why? Motherhood, fatherhood, uh, in the human sense, our bodies as male and female. Your body, Wendy, thanks be to God, is designed for motherhood. My body, thanks be to God, is designed for fatherhood. That's what enabled you and me to become one flesh and bring five beautiful children into the world. This difference, this sexual difference, is not a footnote. It's not something we can erase. It's not something we can do away with. A culture that attempts to eliminate the sexual difference is a culture committing suicide. It is a culture of death. That is the culture in which we live today. We have entirely, uh, in terms of the, the program being held out by the secular world today, we have entirely lost sight of the fundamental meaning of our creation as male and female. And it's not just a biological thing. It's a theological thing. What, do, what does the biology of a male body reveal about God as Father? Notice that the woman creates or generates new life would be the more apt term. No one really creates other than God. But human beings procreate, we create with God, we cooperate with God in generating new life, male and female differently. The female is the kind of organism that generates life inside her body. Yeah. The male is the kind of organism, biologically, that generates life outside his body. This is not only biology, it reveals profound theology. These are symbols that carry through the whole way up to our understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to him. To call God Father is to acknowledge that he creates outside of himself, mm. that creation is something outside of God. It comes from within him, but it is happening outside of him, which means creation is something other than God, other than the Creator. Uh, if we were to primarily conceive of God as mother, the end result of that would be pantheism. And indeed, in, in cultures that are pantheistic, inevitably, they have a concept of God as mother. Why? Because mother creates within inside herself. Which means that if God is mother, creating inside himself erases the otherness, hmm. right? And that otherness, the distinction between the creator and the creature, is only maintained in as much as we understand God symbolically in these masculine categories. But Alexandra is exactly right. I believe she pointed this out. Yeah. When she said, God is not man or woman in, in a biological sense. Uh, and, and this is so important. We don't, only in relation to the incarnation, can we say, and we can, that the second person of the Trinity has taken on a human nature as a male, right? So we can use that biological term male uh, only for the second person of the Trinity. When we're referring to God eternally, we don't use a male term, but we use a masculine term. And there's a distinction here. Male and female are biological categories, but masculine and feminine are symbolic terms. So God is 
masculine in relation to us. Uh, the Father is masculine in relation to the Son. Uh, the Son is also in becoming flesh, uh, masculine, and because he's masculine in relation to creation and creation is feminine in relation to God, if the masculinity in relation to creation of God is going to take flesh, the proper symbol would be the male body, right? That's why Christ came as a male. In the analogy, God is always the bridegroom and humanity is always the bride. Again, look at the anatomy. Why? Because humanity, the creature, is always receptive to the gift of God. This is love, not that we first loved God, but that God first loved us. And yes, really and truly, this mystery, the pattern of it, is stamped in our bodies, in our creation as male and female. So if our bodies are not just biological but theological, when we tinker with our creation as male and, as male and female, we're actually tinkering with theology, with who God is and who we are and how we are to relate to God. When we erase, I'll sum it up this way, when we attempt to erase the difference between male and female, that otherness, that specific otherness between male and female, what we're really doing is erasing the otherness between the creator and the creature. And that otherness is symbolized, that's the key word, in our creation as male and female. Much more could be said, should be said, a doctoral dissertation could be written on it. We don't have the time for that here and now. But I hope, Alexandra, I've given you some food for thought uh, to take to prayer and reflection that will, will be helpful to you. Wendy, what are, what are your thoughts here? I do think that that is food for prayer. The very um, notion of the other, it just inspires a certain awe of the gift of God. Um, it calls us out of our own self-absorption to contemplate, yes, yes, yes. to kind of have that experience of just love and delight in God as the other who is so beautiful and good and that we can just see beyond just um, our natural existence to our supernatural origin through that understanding. Yes. And I really was helped by the way you described that as father creating outside of himself and just establishing that the truth of our existence as creatures that we receive from the father. And I think it can just be really helpful for us. Who, those of us who are just looking at our own path to the Lord, maybe our human relationships in our families, a yes. father, all of these little insights, God is going to, the Holy Spirit's going to just be speaking to our listeners, I think, through those concepts of the other and our receptivity. It's really beautiful. I, I want to point to a passage in the Catechism that's really important here in talking about the fatherhood of God, and you can find it easily enough by just looking up God's fatherhood in the, the index of the Catechism. There's a passage there that says, before we can call God Father, we must allow our earthly ideas of fatherhood and motherhood, 
that we've inherited in our own personal and cultural history, we must allow those to be purified. Otherwise, we're going to end up projecting our own broken and fallen experiences of fatherhood onto God and coming up, therefore, with a very skewed image of mm, God. Right. And I know this from my own experience, working through issues and pains that I've experienced from my own earthly father, uh, and I know it from working with, with thousands of people over the, the decades that I've been doing this work, that calling God Father can be really difficult for people because we end up projecting onto God our own painful experiences of earthly experiences of fatherhood. And we can therefore think, well, the solution is not to call God Father. But we've actually, by doing that, we've, we, we're going the wrong direction, right? We're, we are still maintaining, I can't call God Father because I'm, I'm projecting my own earthly experiences onto God the Father. But the healing that we really need is in the other direction, not where we are comparing God the Father to our earthly fathers, but rather we are seeing our earthly fathers in light of who Jesus Christ has revealed God the Father really and truly to be. Who has God, who has Jesus really revealed God the Father to be? Well, the fullest revelation of God the Father is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means God is not a tyrant. How so? How do we conclude that? God's fatherhood is not domination and control. How do we know that? Because Christ comes into the world to say, let me show you the love of the Father. I am not here to enslave you. In fact, I will let to demonstrate to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that I am not here to dominate, control, enslave, or snuff you out, or whip your back. I will let you dominate me. I will let you control me. I will let you whip my back to demonstrate to you that God has no desire to whip yours. Stop persisting in your unbelief. Stop persisting that God is a tyrant. I've not come to be served. I've come to serve. I've not come to enslave. I will take the form of a slave in order to set you free. That's the revelation of who God really is. As John Paul II says in Crossing the Threshold of Hope, the paradigm of master and slave is foreign to the gospel. God's fatherhood is that of life-giving love to the point of bearing upon himself our own burdens by sending his son. That, that's God's fatherhood towards us. That's his heart towards us. So let's not project our, our broken experiences onto God. Let's allow the true revelation of who God is as Father. Let's allow that truth to heal our Father wounds. And let's, let's hold up our earthly fathers in light of God the Father, not the other way around. And you know what else will happen there? And I've experienced this too. It will awaken in our hearts a deep and profound mercy towards our, our earthly fathers. If my dad's listening out there, I love you, Dad. I love you so much. On that note, if you know somebody who could benefit from the podcast that you just listened to, would you hit that share button and help us expand our listenership? That would be awesome. And my prayer for you 
and Wendy's prayer for you is that what we shared with you in this episode would help you to know in a deeper way what a gift you are, that you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. And we hope and pray that what you've heard will help you become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.